It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies Podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. Today is January the 9th in 2023, and my guest is Patri Friedman. Patri is the founder of the Seasteading Institute and general partner at Pronomos Capital. Patri is one, if not the foremost thinker behind the idea of competitive governance, a concept underpinning much of what this podcast is about and what I'm working on. We'll talk about Patri's life's work and the venture funding side of funding new cities or government's experiments to foster human progress and flourishing. Patri, welcome to the show. Hey, Nicholas. Thanks for having me. Patri, besides what I already said about you in the intro, what else would you like listeners to know about you to get an idea of who you are and what your work is all about? Yeah, I'd say mainly my focus has been on competitive governance, on thinking about governments like businesses and governance like an industry, thinking about laws and institutions from the perspective of a software engineer. But I'm also in general, just somebody who likes to play in new spaces with new ideas and I've been working crypto and a lot of other different things, but definitely the focus like for my life and continuing in the future is this governing side of things. So can you talk a bit more how that idea came about that governments are basically like products that deliver or a good or a bad service to their citizens and can be improved like a product? It all came about in my early 20s when I was thinking, should I live in a different country? My country doesn't seem to be very well operated. And it also doesn't really fit my values. And at first I was like, well, maybe I'm just from the wrong country. And then I looked at a bunch of other ones and I was like, wait, there's some that are run better and some that are run worse and some that offer like different packages of values, but they're all really far off from the degree of like competence and value alignment that I can get with a good for-profit company. I have a lot more values alignment with, with my tribe a lot more operational confidence from, I was like, even T-Mobile is way better than most government services. Why is the biggest sector actually does so poorly? And so it was just very natural to me to apply these lenses of economics and what are the incentives, and then to think about government as an industry. And it became quickly clear, oh, there's no startups. Of course you don't get innovation. There's no opportunity for small teams with a clean canvas to design and try out new things that have most of them fail, but having a few of them work really well. And so the rest of my career came to be like, okay, how can we change that? How can I enable the creation of governance startups? And back then, the early 2000s, governments weren't willing to work with us on experiments at all. And so that's why I turned to seasteading, because historically, New Frontiers had, all, had always been a place that automatically 
gave rise to new jurisdictions and the closest we had to, to startups. And but that all land was claimed in the 20th century and all frontiers were closed and and spades was not ready yet, still too difficult and expensive. So I was like, let's look at the oceans. There are these ideas out there about ocean cities. It seems it's just in the middle of difficult and not done yet, but possible. And maybe that's a way that we could open a new space for new jurisdictions, try out new forms of organization, incentives, economics. And that's why I started with seasteading back in the mid 2000s. I wrote a book on that and eventually got funding to start the nonprofit. But then after some years of working on that, like other people's thoughts and efforts in parallel led to Honduras creating the first version of the DETA program, changing their constitution in 2010, 2011. And I was like, oh, wow, if we can do this on land, that's a lot easier and a lot cheaper. And since then, I started the first modern charter city startup, future cities development in 2011. I had the first MIU with Honduras, but it took a lot of years to actually launch the program. It's not easy to start and run something brand new when you're a small country. And so I ended up working with them for a year and then giving up and doing other things. So at the ocean, was was too challenging or was it a cost issue? Or what were the challenges in doing that? Cost, for sure. Yeah. I still think that there are some plausible businesses. I think that cruise ships are really underused, both from a regulatory arbitrage perspective. So before Honduras, I was actually going to lead it on profit with my co-founder, James, and start a medical tourism cruise ship company. That looked like the best bet to me back then, and it still looks like a good bet. As also being as a way of deploying a package of infrastructure and rooms. Like since 2008, ships have been selling from scrap cost. And so for just the cost of a steel, you can put a whole bunch of beds and electricity and water and bathrooms and everything in any place with a port. And I think that's a way to rapidly deploy square meters in a jurisdiction that's underused. But in general, the ocean is very expensive and it's just much, much easier if we can build on land, which countries are now willing to do. Right. So there's these two options at sea, both in a mobile way with a cruise ship or with sea pods. Then there's on land through agreements or partnerships with existing governments. Now, there's also another idea that Balaji Srinivasan proposed, a so-called network state that is starting a community or a tribe in the cloud. Can you kind of compare to your idea? Basically, if you look at the industry from the industry model, in the virtual world, costs of switching providers and barriers to entry are really low. So barriers to entry is like, how hard is it to start a new provider? In nation states, it's really hard to start a new country. It's really easy to start a new like digital nation, not easy to start one that provides the things that the traditional nation state do. And then the other is cost of switching. It's hard to change a country. More and more people are able to change their country and that puts more competitive pressure on governments. And we see governments try to compete harder for people with things like the digital nomad visas and programs and online switching costs are super, super low and it's really competitive. And so. Online already has the characteristics that lead to much more rapid innovation of jurisdictions. And that's why we find much more values alignment and much higher levels of operational excellence online. That's great. My focus has always been, hey, like, how can we bring those features, the innovation of technology in the world of bits 
into this really important place of government. Because the thing is that government, even though it's enforced in the physical world, conceptually, like it is a virtual infrastructure layer. The association of a body of law with a piece of property is just like bits in people's minds. And you can change what bodies of law apply to a contract or to a piece of property just by flipping those bits, right? Just by contracting out of them. And it's being done in a world of atoms, limited, controlled way right now. But I think it's fundamentally much more like bits and software. And so trying to get it to be that way, it's something that seems really worth doing to me. And the people who are doing work with, with biology and I'm involved in some network state projects, I think having the digital world take over or replace some of the things traditionally done by nation states is, is a great idea and I'm happy to work on it. But to me, it's like not the big gap. It's not like the thing that really needs to happen. It's really holding people back. Yeah. And to me, it's seems like the argument that you made, he, it's about the switching costs. So right now, the model for an entrepreneur to start a new charter city is you need to already have a lot of existing social capital locally on the ground to get to an MOU with an existing government. And you also need a lot of expertise in things like real estate and building the physical world, right? So the upfront costs for that are probably in the several millions or tens of millions. Right. And with the network state, you can start earlier and then get to that higher upfront cost, more capital intensive parts later. For sure. And I love what Praxis has done with this. I think even though the Honduras program is incredible and prospers the zero to one, it's the leading company in this industry. I feel it spoiled us and that it was driven by the country and not by the movement, which is great. But also they changed their constitution before there was companies. And that led us to a mindset of first you work with the country, you get them to pass the regulation, and then you start companies that work within it. And that's really bad because it requires putting a lot of effort and maybe capital in ahead of a regulation, which can easily not get passed. And I think the model of aggregating demand, forming a community of people who want to live together, and then growing that co community and growing the social cohesion within it, and talking to multiple sovereigns, and like, all right, we, we'll ink a deal, but we're not going to start building until you pass the law. We form our community first. I think it's a really powerful, important way. And that's something that both practice and biology have innovated on is using the cloud to address what we call in this business, the cold start problem. Like cities are based partly on network effects. And so starting a new city is always going to be a super uphill battle because you don't have these network effects. That's the cold start problem. And anything you can do to address that, like building up a digital group, a collective first, is addressing one of the core challenges. And so it's super helpful. Let's get a bit to the venture funding side of these new network stage slash startup cities or charter cities. So how did Chronomos uh, develop over time? In the beginning when you started, what was the deal flow and what is it now? How has that developed? Yeah, it's funny because I think compared to other venture fields where people get 10 pitches a day or a big fun 100 pitches a day or something, I remember it was February of 2020, I think, after we did our first close. And it was like, I got new pitch every week for four weeks in a row for a month. And I was like, 
holy crap, dude, it's happening. Oh my God, I just saw four different new companies in a month. And the super new field. And so that part is super different. And we're definitely shifting to more of a studio model this year. My co-GP, Bradford, has experience like starting and running venture studios. And we're just finding that part of this being like a frontier space is like often the companies are being started by people outside of mainstream startup culture, which is great, but they are often not using the best practices in terms of documents and intellectual property agreements and cap tables and things like that. And we're really wanting to get more hands-on. We're mostly doing this with our company, Small Farm Cities, but get more hands-on at working with companies from very early and actually starting some ourselves so that we can architect them with Silicon Valley best practices from the ground up, even if the main operational founders are still kind of people from outside the startup ecosystem. Great. I want to hear more about that a bit later. Before we get there, why or what made you think that venture capital is the right vehicle to supercharge that movement in the first place? I definitely needed an investment vehicle. I'm open to discussion about what form that should take. But for me, having worked on this for so long, like 15 years, when I started designing the fund in 2017, I really wanted to work across projects. And being on the funding side is a natural way to work across projects. All projects need funding. And if they each have to individually prove themselves to investors, that's a lot harder than if someone like me can roll them up into one fund entity and go to investors and say, hey, I'm working on this stuff forever and I feel like it's finally investable now and here's why and I'm going to pick out the good projects. So that's been great. In terms of, there's this really weird thing where I think charter cities at the very beginning, they're very venture-like where there's low capital costs and like high risks, but it's just a team that's flying around, developing their concepts, talking to prospective tenants, talking to potential governments, trying to form their community vision. Like it's not that expensive, but it's also just very high risk, high rate of failure. And if they succeed, they're managing like giant real estate projects and that's worth a lot. So you have potential for venture returns. But at some point, pretty early on, it transforms from venture-like profile to real estate-like profile. And whether that's just the property holding entities of these things early on as they get regulation passed and, and start developing or just the entire thing. Once they're really like operating and they have rent rolls and growth rates and stuff, and it just looks like a high growth real estate management company. So there's still a lot of need for helping companies get funded to make that transition. And there's a gap in the next stage. Like we mainly do pre-seed and seed rate checks of 100K to a million, but there's still a big gap in the, I'd say 1 million to 100 million funding to help companies get to where they're actually like built and operating and have revenue and are de-risked and can probably go to traditional development finance and work working with companies to explore how we can help there. And definitely there's some places there where it should probably not be venture, where it should probably be more like private equity, traditional real estate financing, debt financing, things like that, that we're going to explore for future entities. But I think in the very early stages, it looks very much venture-like. And I think that this is clearly a time when we need cross-company, horizontal funding institutions. 
Yeah, great. I would compare and contrast that with how many people would imagine, how would you find the new city? You have a big development agency like a World Bank or African Development Bank and or government and they give a hundred million or several billion to do it, right? So your kind of key innovation is to start earlier, focus on the intangibles that a group or a company needs to build to properly start building a city, like the governance services, the laws, the agreements with, with local like policymakers or polities, right? Yeah. And you can look at this from the city theory perspective with someone like Jane Jacob, there's places where our intuitions are super, super wrong. And if you actually, instead of using your intuition to first principle thinking, you can see it. And so the intuition is that you can just subsidize things. That if you pay for things, you can make things. And like you can subsidize any kind of one-time thing. You pay to make a building. But when you're trying to subsidize something that's going to generate a stream of value over time, subsidizing a business or a nonprofit, it's actually like really hard and mostly doesn't work. And in the case of cities, if you subsidize building something that doesn't have actual demand and a set of people who would rather live there and where there's jobs they can do, they can't do other places, it mostly doesn't work. And that's a challenge that the Middle East is facing as they try to deploy capital into cities that they hope will make the money when the oil runs out. It's, it's actually really hard. Or you can look at it from the startup perspective, which says, hey, before you have product market fit, you need to be really careful with how much capital you deploy and deploy it pretty minimally. And you don't scale up in foreign capital until you have a proven growth engine with working unit economics. So both of those approaches are helpful, but they're just, people think that they're like automatic and getting somebody to give you a hundred million dollars for a first build versus having somebody invest a hundred million dollars for a first build. But yeah, the person who's investing, even if they're highly motivated, that's going to fall through a lot. It's going to fall through. Sometimes, because they wrongly look at your project and say, this is not going to make money down the road. Most of the time, it's going to fall through because most projects, if they had free money, the unit economics don't work. They're like, not actually going to make money and grow over time. Something that I worked on in my times in academia was the study of mega projects. Nine out of 10 and even more large projects, over a billion plus airports, roads, or public infrastructure are over time and over budget, right? Because they're almost always done in a custom way because everyone wants it the way they want. And when it's custom, you need entrepreneurs to figure out the unknown, right? So you can't just throw money at the problem, right? There's many risk factors that make it just inherently very uncertain to do these very large scale undertakings, right? So what you do instead is you should modularize, you should start smaller and things like that. Yeah, for sure. Can you talk a bit more about the business models of these projects? Is there like one or two or three dominant ones or are they all different? There's a pretty small number of business models. I got into this trying to start new jurisdictions with different laws. And it turned out to mostly be like real estate companies, which is really wacky. And so what it's mainly about, what's different from normal real estate is that in addition to like rent and capital appreciation, you also have like taxes. So what I think is like the standard charter city model is just like a real estate project that starts on empty land and maybe tries to get government concessions or something. They're trying to like create economic activity where it doesn't exist. And then they capture some of that with rents. And what a charter city is doing is a different value driver. So they're creating economic activity 
with not just some superficial concession, with dramatic rezoning of land, to have different laws in, that, in, in institutions, but they're still just trying to take real world space that has no economic activity and get investment and get people there and get economic activity and then capture a share of what they create with rents and with taxes. But actually, as a libertarian, I was always like very against taxes. And now I'm, wait, like taxes, it's basically like an equity share in the economy that you create, right? Because a percentage of like income tax, personal or corporate, it's like a percentage of earnings. That's like taking a percentage of GDP. It's basically like a rev share or it's an equity stake. And actually, I think if you have a private entity creating a jurisdiction, like having them have an equity stake in the economic activity is actually a right incentive and, and like a really good thing. Yeah, it's like when you use Stripe, right? You have these payment fees of like 1% or 2% or something. And that seems like a very viable business model and it aligns incentives very well. Just yesterday, I did my VAT taxes in Prospera and it's just way easier than ever doing taxes before. And so easy, in fact, that I was just very happy to pay it because it's just this short form that you can do like in a minute or two where you just got to check, oh, in my case, I organize conferences, right? So I pay basically VAT on the revenue that I generated of 1%. And then I just report what I made and then I pay that. And it's just, that's compared to when I pay taxes, like in Germany, where I have to pay a software or a lawyer to, to pay them, right? So you have to pay the customer service to get the think I was like over-indexed on libertarianism when I was younger. Look, if the state is doing a really crappy job, then of course we want to look down to it. But actually a lot of that is just, oh, if you're going to do a bad job, let me do it myself. Like, I still feel like I should have the option to opt out of state services and I prefer decentralized and private things. But if the state actually does like a real, like a good job, there was a period where I pirated a lot of like movies and music. But now that there's good streaming services, it's not worth it to me. Like the downsides of doing that, and I'm happy that Netflix and Spotify exist. And so I think when countries are run, my libertarian instinct doesn't go to zero, but I'm like much more willing to pay a service provider if like I get good value for the money. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that makes you happy to pay it. And it's how the economy works in other areas where you voluntarily opt in and have a contract with a company. But back, yeah, but back to the fund, can you say, what is the return profile of these investments that you made with Pronomos? Is there like a model for an exit or an exit scenario? How does that look like? Yeah. Some parts of this are really easy and some are really hard. Sometimes like investors will ask me for what I think like the return profile is, like how big will the hits be and how many? And I'm like, Dude, no way. This is brand new and nobody's ever done it before. Like, we have no idea. In most funds, you have no idea, but let alone in this one. So we can do some theoretical stuff and say, look, here's how much more like land is worth 20 years into Hong Kong or Singapore versus how it was beforehand. And here's the price of the real estate on Roatan that Prosperity is buying versus the real estate in the best special economic zone in the region. But though they're still pretty vague, which is fine. Like I'm very comfortable with like early state investing where just, oh, is there a big market? Is there like a big potential multiple? Sure. But some things like the exit model, I think those are actually like really clear. 
where real estate is the world's largest asset class. And at the beginning, when these things are like kind of risky venture style investments, where it's, oh, are you going to get the regulations passed? Will businesses actually want to locate there? Will people want to move there? It's risky and uncertain. But as these products succeed, they just become like high growth, high margin real estate projects. And when you have a kind of a proven, you got five years of a growth curve and like cap capture and GDP and like lease rates, it's just a real estate project. So now it's just the largest asset class in the world. And there's tons of capital out there that wants to buy streams of dividends, right? And give you a, like a one-time like payout. I think that part's actually really easy. And whether you like sell to private equity or you IPO or you do it via like tokens, like whatever, like getting a one-time exit for profitable real estate is like super, super easy. But in terms of the exact return profile, all I can say is, yeah, it should be like fewer failures than venture if you do it right. And also a lower, you're not going to get a thousand X the way you could for something because I think cities just scale up more slowly and they just take more years to build out. And so I actually looked at, I compared like Singapore and Apple and just in terms of like their total like value. And if Singapore was like 10 years earlier and it was like several times more than Apple and it was like roughly like comparable, but like in general, but that's both like very like decades and decades of compounding, like 50, 60 years of compounding. I think in general, the degree to which you're gonna be able to grow a city in the first 10 or 20 years versus a software business is just gonna be a lot less. But at the same time, once you're deploying like large amounts of capital, because you have product market fit, you have this great downside protection where you like, you actually have hard assets. So I think that you'll have a lower failure rate, especially as you get a little bit further and like lower multiples, but I'm not willing to say anything more definite than that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious just because that is just so out there and a completely new asset class and also great inspiration for me to do my fund kind of building on top of platforms with better regulations. But what is, what are your learnings making that pitch for fund one to investors? How were you able to convince them about a completely new asset class and what can other fund managers or startup founders learn from that? I think one thing that I've learned is I'm not able to convince anybody who's not already highly aligned and interested. And it was a waste of time to try. So our investors are generally, if you are excited about the mission and believe in it, that means first off that you're willing to invest, even if it's not as good a return profile as a generic fund investment, because your money's still going to go to making happen something that you want. And you expect that you're more likely to get a return because you're already bought into thesis. And there's that kind of double effect. And anybody who has any significant skepticism about the thesis, they're just, you're never going to convince them to invest in a new thing. So it's really much more about finding the people who are already convinced and showing them like, hey, here's why now is the time. Here's why for-profit rather than non-profit actually works. If somebody needs me to have a spreadsheet with data backing it about what the distribution of possible returns is likely to be, even to within a factor of three, there's no way. Whereas if they just want me to help them understand like, oh, what's the value stream and who are the buyers in an exit? And just answer those questions and then show that I've thought about it and I've probably had good answers for a bunch of similar questions. That is what you can do 
as a fund manager. And that's just going to change over time. There's a kind of a frontier of like how philosophically aligned does an investor have to be year by year as we show that this stuff works and it seems less crazy. We can just incrementally get less and less philosophically aligned investors. So I felt like anytime I pitched an institution or a committee in 2018, 2019 with fund one, it was kind of a mistake. This year I'm thinking, well, if there's like an institution that is really aligned or I have a strong advocate there who says there's a chance, I'm like, sure, but I'm not going to go after institution initially. Yeah. And that it does seem to me, at least looking from the outside to shift a bit also very largely due to your work, because you're growing a larger social circle, right? And I think the idea run the experiment, this city can be super libertarian. The other one has much more government services or whatever in healthcare that just, when I pitch it, maybe I'm not getting yet investment, but even people who are not aligned on the ideas, they're intuited or at least curious. And sometimes you can even connect it to like their own agenda, for example, in promoting longevity or biotech, something like that, or like new hardware technology, like drones or nuclear power. And hey, these special jurisdictions, if that's a space that's expanding, could be very interesting as these green fields or laboratories to try new technology. So how did you see that sort of initially, what was initially very true believers? How did you already see that social circle expanding and how do you plan or how do you think about expanding that even further? Two things, like, I think I'm pretty skeptical of expanding it in most ways, but there's two things. First off, like, there are people who are true believers in a more meta version of the idea, right? They might not be a believer that a particular private free enterprise focused city works, but they believe that we need new institutions and old ones are failing. We should try out new governments. So it's important to be selling that meta message and having a big tent because there are a lot more people who agree on that and might agree on your particular one. I still believe in like most cases that kind of more private property and more free enterprise zones are most likely to work. But I'm happy to be pitched and convinced on any particular project that follows a different model. It's really freeing to be like, hey, I don't have to convince you that I'm right about political philosophy. I don't have to convince you that the mechanisms that I like are actually the right one. People are always asking me, oh, give a specific example of the law that you would want to change or a political system you would want. And I get the desire to anchor it in something concrete, but I'm really like leery because it's so easy for that to turn into them, like then arguing with like the specifics of that model. No, the entire point is what if we had a startup sector for government? You don't have to agree with me about which startup would work. I could be wrong about which startup will work and still completely right. I probably am and still totally right about the need for a sector. So that's one thing. The other thing is that I think that those circles are expanding automatically. Something that I've experienced is that these ideas that my dad was into in like 90s when he was on like the extropians and cyberpunk lists. And I was on from like the early 2000s. Ideas like life extension and AI safety and competitive governance. There's a bunch of things that were super, super obscure and fringe back then because the impact of tech on the world was very new and they were very much this new way of thinking that some of us early adopters were on early, but that you could get all the people who are the major advocates of like nanotechnology, probably like 10 different things. You could get everybody at one conference or party in San Francisco 
all the major people for all 10 of these. And now there's tens of billions of dollars going to rejuvenation research from big pharma. Like AI safety has gotten big, probably still not as big as it needs to be, charter cities. So all of these fields have expanded by multiple orders of magnitude in terms of how many people believe in them. And so the number of people who are already sold just because we were all correct about the way the world was going. We have sniffed the winds and I found, oh, this, there's this really obscure, different way of thinking that relates to technology and new things that, that if you reason from it with first principles, you get a bunch of different answers that hardly anybody believes that nowadays you've had 20 years of technological deployment and people going out there and selling these ideas. And there's a thousand times as many people or more. There were people who believe that, oh, like inflation happens because central banks trade currency and they're always going to do it with fiat money. And if you have some way of limiting supply, whether that's coin or commodities or whatever, you would actually like fix inflation. That'd be a good thing. There's probably like tens of thousands of those people in the late 90s, right? And now I think there's tens of millions, so literally a thousand X growth in, in some of these ideas. So the number of people who are already convinced is way higher and growing rapidly. And I feel like our task is much more to find the best version of our vision and explain it in the best way and help recruit those people and help network them with each other. And we don't need to be like selling it to noobs anymore. That's already happened. Yeah, exactly. That was also thinking of, I see also two kind of vectors that go more in that direction. One is Bitcoin and blockchain technology, right? As you just said, it supercharged that movement. So there's just millions of people that now financially benefit of opting into that sort of system of decentralizing money. And to do that, they, that comes with a little bit of a basic education. Why are we doing this in the first place? So I think that opens people up more to other ideas as well. Where else to apply that to and what else to decentralize or privatize? And the second, I think there's also increasingly an expansion of the Silicon Valley model happening, right? So venture capital was for a long time, very geographically confined to the United States and to the West Coast. And that's now also increasingly globalizing. For example, part of Venture Accelerator that's doing hundreds of new venture capital funds, many of them in Latin America or Africa. And I think also Silicon Valley culture starting a new company is whatever your ideology is, you want to make something work practically. You start small and you go out there and you challenge conventional views and you, you do it differently. You build different institutions and different things. With that said, is there any success cases in your portfolio of Pronomous Fund One that you'd like to talk about or specifically highlight? Sure. Spare is the big one. That's the zero to one to like operating and growing. Two others that I'm excited about, I think Praxis is the one that I think is like closest to doing a first build with really significant autonomy and scale. So I'm really excited to see what's happening with them. Two companies in our portfolio that are really clicking, like that have product market fit are Kift and small farm cities. And they're actually, neither of them is like the traditional like charter city starting with like regulation. They're both starting in a different way, but they're still competitive governance. Kift is a van life community in the West Coast of the U.S. So it's, it's providing hubs like houses that have showers and gyms and Starlink internet so that a van life community can come together. But it's actually like even more about those infrastructure hubs. It's about the community. So they have a shared culture and they have rituals and they get together and check in every morning and they, they cook 
dinner together every night. And actually the members, even when they're like leaving a neighborhood and you would think that being a nomad would be like more atomized by being part of KIF, they're actually having more community than they did before. And so that's growing really fast. We're really excited about it. And basically making people more mobile means that jurisdictions have to compete for them. Like the two R's of my theory from 2002 of competitive governance was lower the barrier to entry. In other words, make it easier to start new jurisdictions and lower the cost of switching, make it easier to be able to switch jurisdictions because both of those things increase competitive pressure. And I've done almost all my work on that barrier to entry, but things that lower the cost of switching also result in better government because governments then have to compete, have to compete more for people. And the other one, small farm cities in Malawi, and taking empty land and building out hydroponic greenhouses and fish farms and creating villages and eventually towns. So they have a whole idea for how you go from 10 to 100 to 1,000 to 10,000 person farming communities and share infrastructure. And they're, they're vertically integrated. So basically in Africa, there's, there's big central driven development that happens that works pretty well, like Rendever scale projects. But then at the bottom end, it's mostly just people building things by hand in a really crappy way. There's not much like systematic, small and medium scale development. And so they've had to come up with everything. They have the economic model for what they're building, for who's going to do what jobs. They even have the building technology. It's like a rammed earth and the infrastructure stack for the villages. And they built the first couple of sites and they're working really well. The payback period is less than two years, maybe as, as short of a year. And so they make the greenhouses and then they make houses for the people who live there and operate them. And then as they scale up, they make the schools and the recreational facilities. And if you can just make a small profitable economy, like in Africa, market for that is insane, right? There's no reason that this is not Malawi specific in any way. It can work in any underdeveloped part of Africa. And so that one's really ticking. And that's the one where we've been, especially my partner, Bradford, We've been really heavily involved in helping to improve their, their finances and reporting and their election agreements, and then really helping them think about growth and scale with the benefit of Silicon Valley wisdom. So we've been involved really closely. We're super excited about that. We took their whole last round. Also, capital costs are low in Africa, but we did a first investment a couple of years ago, and then they did a second investment and we just took the whole thing because we're really optimistic. And then we'll work with them to raise, to raise a bigger round of outside capital next. Fantastic. Now I'd love to hear a bit more about your thinking when it comes to building a venture studio with Pronomus Capital for future funds. So there's always economies of scale in starting companies. And I think when you're doing something really new, that's especially true. And so that's one factor. Another factor is that we think that Silicon Valley best practices are not that well known among a lot of these founders, and we can really help by bringing them. And another factor, I think this is just another version of economies of scale. We think of governments like a really big enterprise customer, like the mega enterprise, and it's just very slow and it's going to fall through a lot. And so it's really important to not be dependent on one one of those partners, but to have a sales pipeline of multiple ones, as Praxis is doing by talking to like multiple countries, it really makes sense to have a model, a studio model that we're going to do where we have a pipeline of country and project opportunities that we're developing. And the earlier it is, 
the less we invest, we do some amount of kind of specking out the target industries when the regulations needed and prospective tenants. And then we have a small team of entrepreneurs. And then as a project gets more solid, we actually form a company and have them kind of work full time on that. But until then, they're doing this slow, long lead time development with a bunch of countries at the same time. So I think that's going to be like really helpful. So the lead time development, is that done by you or by entrepreneurs that are joining the venture studio? Right now, I'm thinking about hiring somebody who specializes in government relations to run that. I have key hire right now that we're looking for a chief of staff, sort of a COO. That position's been open for a few months. We're looking for somebody who has experience at like a top tier, high growth startup and is very operational and execution minded. And we think that position has really high leverage in the space. Basically, the person who puts into practice the ideas of, of the general partners, Bradford and I. And then the second position to hire for is this government relations. Somebody who just is on the road all the time, meeting different government officials and also doing Zooms and walking them through the benefits, cultivating relationships, helping them work on legislation and shepherd it through. Great company like Praxis, they're able to do that in-house. But then are there entrepreneurs coming to work with you that you then help to get started? Or will there be an application and how will that look like? What will be the profile that you're aiming okay. for? Ideally, what I want is that I think of it as like a matching problem with two pipelines pipeline of projects and the pipeline of founders. And we're helping to cultivate both of those pipelines and as projects get ready and as there's founders that we trust and are ready, we put them together. But you want to have a lot more projects and founders because I think at the early stage, one founder can work on whole country opportunities. And if this was happening at scale, we would want a pool of founders who we were vetting and was, oh, this project is now ready to go from us doing a few hours a week developing it till somebody's going to work 10 hours a week and in three months, 20 hours a week and in six months, 40 hours a week on it. Like we want to put together a founding team. We'd love to have that pool of people. Right now it's small scale enough that we're just looking for just few entrepreneurs to work with. We're not really putting out a call. I used to think that you need a real estate development experience. I now think that it's by far the nominating thing is just startup experience. And just having that culture and that experience and that mindset of being a startup founder, which is super rare. And I actually think a distant second is community building because that really is what these projects are, is like building a community of businesses and tenants. But anybody who's ready to get into charter cities full time and has multiple successful startups or like one successful startup and a bunch of not successful, but like good shots on goal startups should contact us. Great. What else do we need more of? What other barriers to the, do you see to scale where we are right now even further? I think the biggest is definitely founders. I also think credibility is important to land these big enterprise partnerships. Idea. I chose this approach because I was like, I want to find a way of improving institutions that doesn't require convincing 51% of voters because that's absurd. Like you don't have to convince 51% of long distance phone users to try out like new cheap long distance calling in order to launch it or whatever. It's just, it's absurd and it doesn't work. But that said, you do need to convince. So institutional credibility and academic work and such there really helps. Although we're definitely thinking more and more about like small farm cities, like how can you get started and do something significant without even having regulations or government approval? 
I didn't start Podomos to just invest in random real estate projects in the developing world. I have to really believe, okay, even if you're starting without this, there's a clear reason why you need it. And there's reasons why you think you'll get it. And there's like a path to getting significant like governance autonomy. Yeah. What else is needed? Cap like later stage capital. The industry is pretty good for early stage, like pre-seed and seed capital. But people who are writing like one to $25 million checks to kind of fund first builds in some places or like bigger builds in cheaper places. I think that's still like a big hole. Yeah. Yeah. What you said about credibility is interesting. I haven't been in this space for that long, but what seems to me a common challenge or almost a key challenge of any of these projects is, or any startup for that matter, is to build credibility, right? You always start as this small kind of rag tech group. And as you get bigger in the early adopter curve or life cycle, as you get closer to the 51%, you do eventually want large majorities yep. to adopt you, but you got to start small with a 0.1% that's willing to give you a chance and then build credibility over time with like, partnerships with other governments or ICO safety certifications. That's like another thing you can look at is clinical drug trials. Maybe like some tens of percent of people should be on that metformin or something, but most people shouldn't be. And at the, certainly at the beginning, you want to be testing it in test tubes and testing it on mice and then monkeys and then 10 humans and then a hundred humans and then a thousand humans. And you want to be scaling it up very carefully as it's proven to work. I think that's even more true of governance than of medical treatments because it's even more risk and danger if it's done poorly. And so you just want to be even more careful and methodical. At the same time, you can't eliminate innovation in that space because it's so important. We tend to put up too high barriers and then that really costs us whether it's too few medical treatments being developed or too few new countries being started, we really need innovation. It's just, it has to be done carefully, but it's a disaster when it's not done at all, which is quite the default. Yeah. Yeah. And also to extrapolate on that, we need to do it better. Like in startups, you need to do it 10 times better than the incumbents usually because people have status quo bias. So you need to be multiple times better to have a chance at greater adoption. At the same time, we need to build credibility, but also stick to principles, right? Because what many people find credible is like the FDA or some government authority says, yes, the FDA is not like the mature thing. It's pretty awful and pretty bad, right? Having this kind of as the end point, oh, now we're credible because they say yes to us. That also can't be the point, right? So a big challenge also in that space will be to be very methodical, very ethical, and very thought through when it comes to kind of the principles and why we're doing this, right? And kind of achieve credibility, but not causing on some core principles of what it is that we actually want to change. Yeah, a podcast that I'm thinking about starting this year related to like scaling up a lot of these ideas is it's like, who are the people who worked in the 20th century on the things that now in the 21st century are becoming really big? And whether that's like, AI risk or life-extending technology or virtual reality um, or competitive governance. A lot of those thinkers who helped create the underpinnings for these technologies, a lot of them, they're, they're not extroverts. They're not branding people. They're not self-promoters. They're like shy, introverted, Asperger's-like nerds and who are not being heard now. I'm really interested in starting a podcast to go and find those people and feature them and be like, 
hey, maybe we don't want to follow the first principles, but let's at least hear what they were and think through whether they're good or bad and consider whether now this stuff is fitting and scaling. That's such a great idea. And I have a couple of ideas for guests and people that really love to talk about this. Uh, one, for example, I'm actually going to have him on my podcast in one of the coming weeks, Eric Voorhees. So it just fascinated mm -hmm. me when he had that debate with Sam Bankman-Fried. I'm not sure if you've seen that. I did. Yeah. yeah. I just met him a few months ago for the first time. Yeah, Eric, great. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, it was like, so Eric Voorhees and Sam Bankman-Fried had this debate like 12 days before the FTX meltdown. And Eric just was this very principled, thought-through guy. And he was just very precisely exposing flaws in Sam Bankman-Fried's thinking, like meticulously. And you could really see, hey, here's someone who has a point of view that not everyone agrees with, but he thought it through very clearly. Someone else who clearly hasn't. And then it was kind of prophetic. The house of cards was falling apart. <laughs> so yeah, that podcast is going to be super interesting. Um, really looking forward to that. Patrick, anything, any other shout outs you want to make? Anything else you're looking for right now? Who should contact you and how can they find you? Yeah. Uh, so we've kind of like underfunded and <laughs> understaffed and having tough times personally during the pandemic. So we don't have a ton of stuff out there. But we're kind of fixing that right now, and we're going to be doing podcasts and blog posts and video content and, like, way more stuff this year. So I would say follow me at Patricimo on Twitter and Pronomos, which is P-R-O-N-O-M-O-S-V-C. We have a portfolio page at pronomos.vc slash portfolio, which lists, like, the social media. We've recently up updated it with, like, all the social media channels for, like, all of our portfolio. And so it's like a great place to follow like a whole bunch of projects at once. Yeah. And just stay tuned because this year we're going to be putting out like way more stuff than we have in, in the last few years. Fantastic. Patrick, it was really epic to have you on this podcast. Probably for me personally, at least my long, longest awaited guest because your work, your work, your father, your grandfather has been hugely influential to me, especially your work and sort of that final step of like, How do we like practically improve things? That's been a huge inspiration to me, to this podcast and to the VC fund that I'm doing with Infinita, seeking out and finding Frosper in the first place. So thanks so much for coming on the show, Patri. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. And I'm glad you're part of the movement. go, learning follows. At Harvard Business School, we offer in-person and virtual executive education programs on a broad range of business topics. This is where the brightest minds in business come together. Add your unique voice to an exceptional peer group. Come learn from others' diverse perspectives and from our world-class faculty. It's your time. Go. To apply, visit hbs.me go. That's hbs.me go.